Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me on this opportunity to focus on the Immaculate Conception. This is, again, one of the Holy Days of Obligation. When the Church calls it a Holy Day of Obligation, it is trying to elevate the importance of this moment in salvation history. And again, this refers to the Conception uh, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She free from the taint of original sin. The dogma of the Immaculate Conception also uh, guarantees that she would be free from actual sin as well. And we're going to take uh, today to focus in on the Blessed Mother. Uh, take Go to the Scriptures itself. As I've said before, from coming from evangelical Protestantism, into full communion with the Catholic Church, I had difficult time with the Marian dogmas. And it's, it, is, it strikes me as funny now, because I used to think of myself as being a Bible-only um, Christian. But early on in my Christian experience, I had been given a lens by which I would interpret the Scripture. And I would interpret the Scripture through the, uh, what I thought was the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's amazing... I wasn't even aware that this was a filter I was using, but it was, and it screened out so many beautiful aspects of salvation history, including the role of the Blessed Mother. Sandra Measle joins us today to take a look at Marian imagery in the Old Testament. St. Augustine said, as you know, that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is fulfilled in the New. We're going to take a look at that in relationship to the role of the Blessed Mother. Also, Shane Kapler joins us about consecration to our Heavenly Mother. We'll look at the biblical roots of Marian consecrations. We're also going to have Colleen Presbridge with us sharing how to consecrate your family uh, to Mary. Uh, She's written a a wonderful book on Marian consecration for families with young children. And then we're also going to look at Mary in the Gospels. This is a book by uh, William Albrecht and Father Christian Kops. Uh, Mary Among the Evangelists, the definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. It's a lot coming up, but first, the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 8th. It's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. Time is running out to get aid to Ukraine. That's what White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters today. She called on Congress to quickly pass President Biden's sweeping supplemental package that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and border security. But Republicans are staunchly opposed to passing the measure unless Democrats agreed to border policy changes to address the surge of migrants coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans are calling for restrictions on asylum and parole programs. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said Biden is AWOL when it comes to addressing the crisis at the border. 
A judge's ruling a Colorado zoo can speak on behalf of its elephants, not an out-of-state animal rights group. The petition against the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado Springs was filed by the Non-Human Rights Project, which claimed the zoo was illegally confining and neglecting its five elderly African elephants and demanded they be relocated to a sanctuary. An El Paso County District judge has dismissed the case, stating the nonprofit's petition sought to give legal personhood to animals, and the zoo has a better relationship with its elephants than the group. And the Pantone Color Institute is revealing the color it thinks will define 2024. Peach fuzz has been chosen as the 2024 color of the year. The hue is described by Pantone as a velvety gentle peach whose all-embracing spirit enriches mind, body, and soul. This is the 25th anniversary of Pantone choosing a color of the year. Last December, Pantone named Viva Magenta as 2023's color of the year. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. St. Augustine said that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is fulfilled in the New. And we've touched on this topic earlier this week with Stephen Clark. Now, the early church fathers saw every part of Scripture as linked to every other part, and the Blessed Mother's role in Scripture is no exception. But people have often said, well, where in the world do you find Marian imagery in the Old Testament? I mean, what are, what are the what kind of background do you have in the Old Testament uh, that gives us a Catholic picture of the Blessed Mother? Well, with me right now is uh, Sandra Measle. Sandra is an American medievalist and writer. She's the author of hundreds of articles on history and art, among other subjects, and has written several books, including The Da Vinci Hoax, Exposing the Errors in the Da Vinci Code, which she co-authored with Carl Olson. And Sandra, great to have you back with me. Thanks. Yes, thank you. It's brave of you to ask me again. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite confident. Well, let's let's look at this. Um, it is many people are unfamiliar with uh, the idea of types in the scripture. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give us some idea of what is meant by a type and an anti-type? A type is a person, thing, or event that foreshadows uh, Christ or some other New Testament. Uh, figure. Uh, Adam is a type of Christ, Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, the first man, the first Mm -hmm. God-man. You also have things like the Paschal Lamb Mm -hmm. is a type of Christ being offered for our sins, and so on. Oddly enough, when I was in high school, long before the Vatican Council, Our religion book, which was called Our Quest for Happiness, and I think that's been reprinted for homeschoolers sometime, was based on types and figures. Interesting. And I was being educated, catechized, exactly the way a medieval person would have been catechized uh, if they were going on to higher things with literacy and so forth. And that's all gone. As you said, nobody knows what a type is. That's true. Yeah, and it's a major part. I mean, it's part of the apostolic mindset, for heaven's sakes. You can't understand their use of the Old Testament if you don't understand this concept of types and anti-types. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the types dealing with uh, the Blessed Mother. Um, we we call her the, um, uh, she's the, uh, the mother of the Church, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. How does that, what kind of roots in the Old Testament, would a concept like that find? Well, the queen, uh, the queen mother figure, 
in ancient Israel was the most powerful woman at court. Not the king's wife, since he would have numerous wives and concubines, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. his mother. And his mother would stand beside him in his court his uh, when he is presented to his court, presented to his people, and she is essentially the mother of the nation uh, while that king is reigning. Well, since Jesus reigns forever, Mary is the mother of all Christians and all other people. She is therefore the mother of the church. Hmm. Uh, In fact, there was a book very popular in the 60s called Mary Archetype of the Church, I believe by Yves Congar. And the original type and antitype is Eve. And St. Justin Martyr said back in the second century that Eve is the failed mother of humanity, according to the flesh, but Mary is the victorious mother of humanity, according to the spirit. And he made this famous pun that Ave, the greeting to Mary by Gabriel, reverses Eva. <laughs> wow. And yeah. Because they are opposites of yeah. each other. Yeah, that's that's still, fascinating. I hadn't heard that before. You still hear that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's uh, that's Saint Justin Martyr, and that pun is made in numerous places in spiritual writings, and also in the ancient and very beautiful little uh, hymn Ave Maristella, that you have reversed the name of Eve. You are Ave instead of Eva. That's right. Changing Eve's name yeah, at the close yes. of it. Yes, yeah. and you know, in the yeah. Old Testament, changing somebody's name is a mark of changing their mission in life. Right, right. Uh, talk to me about the um, the the great sign, uh, Revelation 12, verse 12, the woman yes. clothed in the sun. Yes, I have always loved that image. In fact, I made one to decorate my high school classroom one time, and I had Mary in orange, and it was a black-haired Mary, hmm. <laughs> and the serpent uh, was also black, and this was all done out of textured paper and so forth, uh, yeah. uh, decoration. We we did that back in high school. They don't do that anymore, either. <laughs> but uh, the woman clothed in the sun, and a great sign appeared in heaven, the woman clothed in the sun, with the tw- a crown of 12 stars around her head, and the moon was under her feet. Well, this is a double sign, has always been taken by Catholic commentators on Scripture, as a double sign of Mary and the Church. They clothed in the sun, Jesus is the son of justice, and Mary is uniquely conformed to Christ. The twelve stars could be the twelve tribes of Israel, or the twelve apostles. And the moon is under her feet, is that the changing world of appearances is dominated by mary she is not she it is under her she is not under it if you if you follow that mm-hmm. and this was a very popular way of depicting mary in the late middle ages uh that you had uh sun rays behind her body and the starry crown and it was usually a crescent moon because that is easier to recognize as the moon and lo and behold, we also see that in Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yes, yes, that's right. For the same the same reason, but the original Our Lady of Guadalupe image on the cloak did not have the rays of sun or the moon 
and those were put in by human hands afterwards. The original image was just Mary. The Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain is shown with the rays of the sun and the crescent moon and the stars. Hmm. Uh, This is not usually uh, talked about, but a close examination of the cloak uh, a number of years ago, they could see where the paint had been added, and the paint is not like the actual texture and appearance of the image of Mary. Ah, interesting. Okay. And then the other thing about a woman clothed in the sun, she fulfills uh, an Old Testament uh, image in the Song of Songs, uh, fair is the sun, bright is the bright is the sun, fair is the moon, terrible as an army in battle array. <laughs> that she will do battle for her children in the church against forces of evil. And in Revelation, when the great sign appears, and the great the woman of the great sign is pregnant and is about to bring forth the Messiah, the devil is there to devour the Messiah, but the woman flees into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, and the great Satan dragon is left fulminating. Hmm. Uh, Was there much speculation in the uh, history of uh, theology or the history of art about that place in the desert? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's ever been depicted. I've seen uh, medieval illustrated apocalypse, (coughs) excuse me, that have uh, Mary flying, the the woman, Mary, the church, Mm -hmm. flying with Mm -hmm. the wings of a great eagle Mm -hmm. over the landscape, but you don't see where she's going. Where she's going, yeah, where she lands. No, you don't. Uh, The Apocalypse, Book of Revelation, of course, never tells us what we're really curious about, and that's why it's divine. <laughs> well, the article that you, um, from Catholic World Report, you also take a look at the, the Marian imagery uh, throughout the Middle Ages and changes that were made in the image of the Madonna. Uh, what's the significance of those changes? Well, the earliest image we have of Mary is in a catacomb painting from, I think, uh, 200 or 250, and it's a woman with a child. And this was intended to show it's a, he had a real mother, Jesus was a real child. This is expressing the humanity of Jesus. And then as time goes on, and you have lots of other uh, famous ancient icons of the Madonna, that is the emphasis that she is the one who brings Jesus to humanity in the Eastern Church, they talk about Mary as the shower of the way, and she's pointing to the child that she's holding, uh, because she always points to him. She is not in this for herself. So in uh, by the time the Middle Ages dawn, and we've shaken off some of the worst of the Dark Age poverty and ignorance, they like to put Mary enthroned, not just holding the child as a mother, but enthroned on a beautiful throne, and she's presenting Jesus full face to the viewer. And she is the seat of wisdom. He is divine wisdom, and she is the living throne of flesh on which he stands. Uh, This was very popular, the... uh, the uh, seat of wisdom, which you also find in the uh, Litany of the Blessed Virgin, a very ancient title. And then over the course of the Middle Ages, they want to make her a more realistic mother. 
And so you have increasingly personal, more sentimental, more gentle images, not this formal, mm. hieratic uh, image with a message. You have uh, be- the beautiful Madonna, where the very beautiful, sweet-faced Mary is cuddling the child and maybe offering him a piece of fruit, which is, again, reversing Eve giving Adam the fake yes, fruit. Yes. Yes, and so forth, and you also have uh, the the sorrowful mother who holds the dead Christ in her arms, the Pieta. Mm-hmm. Uh, these became very emotional images, both the happy ones and the sad ones. And now, in our churches, we tend to have images drawn from Marian apparitions, and not particularly from ancient art. Interesting. Um, does do, uh, is our efforts made to uh, depict? Uh, Old Testament references uh, to Mary any longer? I mean, you're trying to draw those those types, or have artists abandoned that practice? Well, this is not the world's greatest period of religious art, in right. case you didn't notice. <laughs> and I know there are people like uh, the ones who write for the website New Liturgical Movement are, are very into that sort of thing, but as far as uh, seeing them in churches or Catholic institutions... I'm not aware of it. Yeah. On the other hand, you have an enormous amount of secular art history where these images have been identified and discussed, and you can see uh, reproductions in art books. And that's, I mean, that's why I wrote the article, because I happen to have the art book. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Well, Sandra, we're out of time, but let me thank you yes. once again for being with me, and I love your work, and it's always good to talk with you. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Sandra Measle, Marian Imagery in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a wonderful article. The Past, Her Prelude, Marian Imagery in the Old Testament. Love makes the world go round, songwriters tell us. But there is a greater love than mere romantic love. The theological virtue of love, called charity, means we love God above all things for his own sake, just because he's God and infinitely lovable. We love our neighbor as ourselves because we love God, and he desires us to love our neighbor. The Catholic Catechism tells us that Jesus makes charity the new commandment. By loving his own to the end, he renders the Father's love, which he receives, visible. While we were yet in our sins, and as such his enemies, Christ died out of love for us. He asks us to love as he does, love even our enemies, Make even those far from us our neighbors. Love children and the poor as Christ himself. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Family life is a ministry. We tend to think of ministry as the churchy stuff we do at church, but the word ministry means doing any activity that communicates God's love to another person. When we help our family love and worship God every day at home, we're doing ministry. When our families cherish each other with Christ's love, we're doing ministry. When our family is kind to others, or when we invite others to our home for godly fun and fellowship, or when we try to attend to each other's needs generously and cheerfully, we're doing ministry by doing things that share God's love with others. The ministry of domestic church life is among the most important ministries of all. And discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life. Check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. 
Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Advent is here and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week to let us know. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, part of Catholic life uh, is devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And, you know, those of us who were spent many years within evangelical Protestantism, uh, some of us had to overcome objections uh, to the Marian dogmas. Uh, but even once uh, we found a biblical basis for the Marian dogmas, we had to struggle with the idea of, well, what about the biblical basis for Marian devotions? <laughs> My guest, Shane Kapler, uh, will share his own story of uh, dealing with those problems, and uh, the great fruit of that struggle is a book called The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration, Devotion to the Immaculate Heart in Light of Scripture. Uh, Shane has uh, also published, and we've talked to him about his other book, The Epistle to the Hebrews, and the seven core beliefs of Catholics. For the last 35 years, he's been involved in evangelism and catechesis within the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and has contributed articles to a number of websites, such as Catholic Exchange and Epic Pew. He also sits on the board of the Institute of Catholic Humanism, an apostolate that's devoted to unpacking John Paul II and Benedict XVI's teaching on God and the human person. Shane, good to have you back here. Thanks. Al, it's always a thrill. Thank you. Well, let's let's tell your story. 
because uh, I, I really appreciate it that I went from this this issue of dealing with the dogmas uh, that was fine, but then mm-hmm. you have to deal with the devotion. So tell us a little bit about your own experience. Well, uh, starting out when I was in high school, that's when I really had a, a crisis of faith. Um, one, just is there a God? And the Lord, he reached into my life very mercifully, and Jesus showed himself to me in a way that I could understand, and I knew that he really was the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as being part of the Catholic Church, now I had been born into a Catholic family, but my crisis of faith, um, nothing that I had received in Catholic school at that point, going to school in the 80s and, and the catechesis at the time, prepared mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, so when the Lord reached into my life, um, it didn't necessarily mean that I was supposed to be Catholic. Right. Um, I started reading a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist uh, preachers and attending a non-denominational church in St. Louis. But as I got deeper and deeper into Scripture, one after another, these Catholic issues kept popping out at me. And uh, the Lord introduced me to some Catholics who were just on fire yeah. with the Holy Spirit and also incredibly orthodox. And so slowly, over a seven-year period, the Lord is dealing with me on one Catholic issue after another. Mm-hmm. And so finally, I'm just full-fledged, um, and I believe everything that the Church teaches about about the papacy, about um, tradition, the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. But then, exactly as you said, I come up to Marian devotion. Now, I, I understood the rosary and her intercession, but when I heard about being consecrated to Mary or consecrated to her Immaculate Heart, like we hear at Fatima, um, an apparition that the Church has has honored. I mean, the popes have made pilgrimages to Fatima Mm -hmm. and really brought it to the world's attention. But we hear Mary saying that to save souls from hell, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. And that sounds like Mary's being put in the place of Christ. Sure. She is the source of salvation. And I heard about St. Louis de Montfort's book on true devotion and him talking about being consecrated to Mary to be more consecrated to Jesus. And what does all this mean? I mean, in Scripture, you only hear about being consecrated to God. Right. And so, um, so it really became a struggle for me. But... I knew enough that um, people like John Paul II, they were clearly saints, Maximilian Kolbe, Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that they had this intense devotion to Mary, that they embraced this idea of consecration, so I was willing to hear it out. And just as the Lord had educated me on so many other issues, I was humble enough to be educated on this one, too. Yeah, yeah. But, um, (laughs) and really... Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. No, no. I'm just. I just appreciate. I appreciate the steps that you went through there. Uh, very similar to my own. So, yeah. Uh, one of the books that I found most helpful was um, by Monsignor Arthur Calkins called "Totus Tuus," and it's about John Paul II, his teaching on Marian consecration, hmm. and he pointed out how. Pope John Paul II uses the word entrustment as a synonym for consecration. Interesting. Okay. It starts to unpack that biblical data. So um, what, I like, what I like to do with people is to just talk about what is consecration in Scripture, mm-hmm. and it means something being set apart for God. So in the Old Testament, we have the altars, the sacrifice, 
and most notably the priests themselves. They are consecrated. They're taken out of common usage in the world and belong solely to the Lord. And then in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, he talks about how God the Father consecrated him and sent him into the world. And we read in John 2 how Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple for that consecration of the firstborn. Then at the Last Supper of the Lord, he says to the apostles, well, no, not to them, he prays. He says, Father, for, they, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be consecrated in truth. Jesus, in his death, in his Passover to the Father, he is gathering together his entire life and entrusting himself into the Father's hands. And he does that so that in baptism we can be joined to him and make that same Passover to the Father. So that's consecration. And when we talk about Marian consecration, we have to recognize we're using that word in an accommodated sense. Mm -hmm. There's a similarity, but there's a dissimilarity. Just as we use the word Father, ultimately it's only true of God. Only God is truly Father in the fullest sense. Right. But we can call the, the men who, uh, who are our progenitors truly father because they cooperated with God in bringing us into this world. Yes. So they bear that t- title in an accommodated sense. When we speak of consecration to Mary, what we mean is entrusting ourselves to her motherly heart and motherly intercession so that we can begin to share in her consecration to Jesus, which was total and complete. And we want to share her interior life with Christ. That, that's what we're really talking about at Fatima, where she says, devotion to my Immaculate Heart will save souls from hell. Yeah. Because we're wanting to enter into Mary's own relationship with Jesus, well, which is total and perfect, and that will save us. Elaborate on this idea of devotion focused upon the heart. Sure. Well, biblically, the heart is the core of the person. When we go through the Old Testament, it's the heart that decides. Uh, It's the heart that knows right from wrong, that prays, that loves. It's the heart that God dwells in. And so when we talk about consecration to Mary's immaculate heart, again, we're coming to that idea of we want to get to the core of her relationship with God, to enter into her own interior life, her prayer, her surrender, her cooperation. We're asking the Holy Spirit to knit our hearts together with hers in the communion of saints and allow us to enter into her love of Jesus. So that's really your focus here is uh, looking at Mary's relationship to Jesus as a model for us. Is that right? Um, a model, but yeah. also, Al, I would say there's something more to it, yeah. that there is a supernatural union yeah. that occurs here. Um, and what I like to point out to people, because I know at one time in my life, the idea that, gosh, I mean, participating in another person's consecration of the Lord, how does that work? Yeah. yeah. But when I was researching this book, I came across what Paul says in First Corinthians, and he's addressing... Christians that are married to unbelievers at the time. Yeah, this is and a great passage. This is yeah, a great passage. Of, <laughs> yeah, it is, and it's shocking when we read it, um, especially if you're outside of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But he says, if any woman has a husband who's 
an unbeliever and he still consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him because the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife and an unbelieving wife consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. And then Paul says, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you'll save your wife? You and I know Paul's no theological lightweight. He he recognizes <laughs> Jesus as the only source right. of salvation, but he also knows that in Christ's hands, we can be instrumental causes in the salvation of others by spouses helping one another to come to baptism, bringing their children there. And this idea of um, of entering into a relationship with someone that the Lord... Um, communicates his grace through us to work in their life. Paul develops that even more when he's talking about marriage in Ephesians, talking about Christian husbands and wives manifesting Christ's love for the church. And when we look at the relationship between husband and wife, they don't become idols to one another. Right. I mean, even though they're meant to lead one another to God, but um, they challenge one another. They pray for one another. They communicate God's love and strength. And that's what we're talking about with the Blessed Mother, that Jesus, part of his new covenant that he he forms at the cross, is to give us Mary as our mother to have a true spiritual maternal relationship with her. So her motherhood is the foundation for all that the Church teaches about her. That's the foundational matter. Yes, and her motherhood is totally the gift of God's grace to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is this is the greatest example of God in his pure gratuitousness and predestination choosing someone and, and appointing them, consecrating them to a task and giving them the grace to carry it out. Yeah. And so really no one could be more entrusted to Mary than Jesus was by yeah. the Father. And for us to entrust ourselves to her, in a sense, to her love and intercession, it's it's a pale reflection of what the Father did in Jesus when he gave him to Mary. That's great. Uh, uh, really, this is, uh, I think, very important for, uh, I mean, I think this is going to have uh, great uh, evangelical possibilities here, uh, because while we usually can make the arguments about uh, the Marian dogmas from Scripture, uh, we're still having to deal with the how odd the devotions are. And I think what you've given us here, Shane, is something that's really rich. And uh, I want to come back on the other side of the break and continue the conversation uh, and let you continue to unpack uh, what you've got here in this marvelous book, The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? St. Anthony Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. 
they regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. This commandment is similar to the Ninth because it uses the word covet, which means to inordinately or inappropriately desire something. And therefore, related to this are concepts that are familiar to us, such as greed or avarice, which is the undue passion for riches and power. Likewise, envy and jealousy are related here. In jealousy, you have something that I want, but I want it inappropriately or excessively. Envy, however, is a very dark thing because it wants to destroy that which is good in another person because it makes me look bad by comparison. And so in all these ways, the Lord is asking us to look very carefully to our desires because they can grow too expansive and lead us into very grave sins. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. In the midst of our culture today, in this age of relativism, which wants to grant Jesus some significance, but not so much, so we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith, and please God, the faith of everyone here, is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away, when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Take a look at the motherhood of Mary, which is really foundational uh, to how what all the Catholic Church has to say about her. Her motherhood is foundational. With me is Shane Kapler. He is the author of an outstanding book called The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration, Devotion to the Immaculate Heart in Light of Scripture. 
What I'd like to do, Shane, is take take the example of the brown scapular. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had it 800 years, uh, and it's one of the signs of consecration to Mary that's popular. I grew up, in fact, I was raised Catholic, and I grew up with the uh, the brown scapular and re-enrolled many, many years later, uh, once uh-huh. I was reconciled to the Church. Um, it's a very simple garment, it's a miniature version of the religious habit worn by Carmelites. Got two small rectangles made of brown wool linked together on both sides by a cord. Okay, take that and go to the Scriptures with it. Okay. Um, well, when we look at the Law of Moses, we see that Jewish men are commanded commanded to wear zitzit, tassels, at the edge of their garments. Mm-hmm. And God says, it shall be to you a tassel to look upon and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart. And so Jesus, we hear in the Gospels, he has these tassels on his garment that are sacramentals. The sick in faith just want to touch them, and when they do, they're healed. Well, how did those tassels get on the edge of Jesus' garments? It was his mother who made his garments, who would have (laughs) sewn them for him. Mary put those tassels there, and they were sacramentals. And we hear about other sacramentals in the book of Acts, like handkerchiefs that Paul's touched being Mm -hmm. taken to the sick, and they're healed. Okay, so the brown scapular that we wear today, it doesn't come about until 1251 with St. Simon Stock, the head of the Carmelite order, who said that he received a vision of the Blessed Mother, and she showed him the scapular and said that she wanted that to become part of the Carmelite religious habit. From that point forward, it would be a sign of their special entrustment to her and her intercession um, to keep them united with God through the moment of death into heavenly glory. Now, that idea of the scapular, it really does. It's a garment given to us by Mary, just like the tassels on Jesus' garments were. Um, And it's for the same purpose, that we look to those, and we want to follow the Lord's will instead of our own heart. Again, that's right at the core of who Mary is in her identity, Mm -hmm. as the one who says, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Yeah, yeah. Now, what does Elijah have to do with all this? Ah, thank you, yes. Well, the Carmelite order, spiritually, they trace themselves back to the prophet Elijah. Um, The Carmelite order started as a group of hermits gathering on Mount Carmel in the Holy Land, and they looked to Elijah, who, um, as a prophet, he had a mantle that he wore. It was made of, of course, camel hair. Mm -hmm. And Elijah, right before he's ascended into heaven, he says to his, his pupil, Elisha, is there anything I can do for you? And Elisha says, well, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah <laughs> says, that's, that's a hard one. But if you see me taken, then your, your petition's granted. And Elisha does see him assumed into heaven in a chariot of fire. Well, what comes, what comes out of the sky but Elisha's mantle? It lands on the ground. And Elisha picks it up, and he uses it to part the waters uh, in front of him, and he passes over on dry ground. And he begins wearing that mantle in Elijah's place. And from that time forward, it seems to have become the garment of the prophet in Israel. So we hear John the Baptist, he dons a garment of camel hair yeah. when he's preaching in the desert. Yeah. He's a new so Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this idea in the Carmelite order coming from Elijah 
that there is the the garment, the the religious habit. And here's the Blessed Mother again giving this this addition to the religious habit to draw people's minds again to follow the Lord's will and not their own and to unite themselves in prayer with her. Yeah. Yeah. So you can you look upon this uh the scapula as the garment she made for us. Exactly. Exactly. And and again, what we're doing is Mary, well, Jesus is bringing us into the intimacy of his own family. Yeah. Um you know to uh, yeah, I mean for the Lord to be clothed in clothes that Mary made and then for us to wear this this sacramental as a spiritual participation in that. You know, it's uh, I mean you point out at the beginning of the book that um Joseph, uh, you know, wasn't afraid to take Mary into his home. He already had uh, a relationship with God. He was also a spiritual man. But by bringing Mary into his home, uh, that enhanced his relationship with God. It deepened it. It made it more intimate. And um, at the close of the Gospel of John, or John chapter 19 anyways, um You've got uh, the Apostle John taking Mary into his home. And uh, I think this is, again, this is all, we live out, these are all uh, prototypes of our own uh, relationship with Christ and with his mother. Yes, when Jesus, at the cross, he looks down at Mary first, and he says to her, Woman, behold your son. Yeah. Motion, or indicating John, and then to the disciple, behold your mother. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own idia, is the Greek word. And we translate it in English as home, and that's fine. It can be, uh, it can be an idiom for home in the first century, but it literally means into his own. Huh, and we know really? the way yeah. that John writes, and he has multiple layers of meaning yep. in these words. So, yeah, John took Mary into his home, but he took her into his everything that was his own, his inner life with Jesus, his apostleship. So when we read John's Gospel, and we see the way that John penetrates the mystery of Jesus differently than the synoptics do, um, we are experiencing the fruit of his maternal relationship with Mary and sharing in her Immaculate Heart. Um, also, Al, it, yeah, it strikes me that Jesus, after he does this, and it says he took her into his home, the gospel, right away, John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. <laughs> and then after he has that drink of the vinegar, says, it is finished. Yeah. So yeah. what he does with John and Mary there, that is part of this new covenant that he's creating, and he's establishing her as the mother in the family. This is this is true. Just is truly beautiful. So so let's let's take this next step, and that is that she's also mother of the Eucharist in this respect. So yes, tell us about that. Well, the Eucharist, as you know, is really the mystery of our consecration. Yep. That our desire is to be transformed into the Lord Jesus, and so when we receive Him in Holy Communion, we want to be His body and blood in the world. Well, the Blessed Mother, 
she shares in that mystery of the Eucharist. God took a cell from her body and transformed it into the humanity of the God-man. Hmm. And so we're, we're having a share in this mystery in the Eucharist when bread and wine are brought forward and God transforms them into the body and blood of Christ that we receive and then enter into the Lord's Passover, his death, resurrection, and ascension, which the New Testament said that is his consecration to the high priesthood, his Passover, and that he now sits enthroned as our high priest. We are entering into that at every Eucharist. That is the mystery of our consecration. Hmm. And it has to be repeated and renewed and deepened, just like the Lord Jesus himself. We have these multiple instances throughout his life on earth of him being consecrated to the Father, and it culminates in his Passover. So for us, we have to constantly renew this offering. Like Scott Hahn said when he talks about Romans 12, that we're called to be living sacrifices. Yeah. And he says, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps trying to crawl <laughs> off the altar. Right. And so that's why we have to do this, renew it every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the um, celebration of the Mass is, of course, the, we talk about the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. And uh, again, bringing it back to it's the source and summit of our faith. No, nothing is left behind when when we begin focusing on the Eucharist, when we begin recognizing that with the Eucharist we have a door that opens to the kingdom in the power the taste, where we can taste the powers of the age to come. It also swings the other way where Christ himself reaches down uh, and it helps us assimilate himself in, into our lives. But that isn't done apart from Mary. And I think this is, uh, again, Mary as mother of the Eucharist is something that I think many of us uh, can really uh, keep in mind in order to deepen and really in, in freshen, freshen our understanding of what's really going on at Mass. Um, so, talk I agree, to, Alan. Go ahead, yeah. Oh, I'm just going to say that when I think about Mary in the Eucharist, too, I think of when, at whatever point she heard Jesus teaching on the Eucharist, her mind had to go back to the Nativity, because she's she's led from Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth to him in a stable yes. in Bethlehem. The name itself means House, house of, of Bread. bread. Yeah. And yeah. where's the only place she has to lay him but a feeding trough for animals, yeah. a manger? Yeah. So, I mean, the Eucharistic mystery is stamped into Mary's life and her experience of Jesus right from the start. Um. Talk about the Daily Angelus. I know you deal with that uh, in the book. Oh, I love, <laughs> I love talking about the Angelus, because um, Jesus and Mary, as faithful first-century Jews, would have stopped three times a day to pray. And that's exactly what we're doing in the Angelus. We are joining Mary and her wonder at the incarnation of her son, or in the Regina Chile here in the Easter season, of the joy of the resurrection. And that's three times a day that we're joining her in prayer, exactly as Jesus himself would have throughout his entire life. <laughs> I, just, I just love the way this all ties together uh, so beautifully. How, much, uh, how long did it take you to really kind of work through uh, this material? I, I've not seen it anywhere else, so I'm really quite impressed with it. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you, Al. Um, Al, I guess I would say that um, for myself spiritually, it it took at least two years to yeah. work through. And um, and you know that when you sit down to write something and you, you want to research more and learn more <laughs> so that you can present it as well as you can. Right. So, um, and it was funny. I first sent out um, proposals to a few publishers uh, nine years ago, and nobody was interested in publishing really? on this topic. <laughs> really? And then, um, so for the eight years after that, I, it was still just on my heart. While I was writing other books, I was always gathering material sure. on the Blessed Mother and devotion. And um, and then the Lord, <laughs> he actually let Tan contact me about a project. And when we were talking, I said, oh, by the way, I've got this book that I think would be perfect <laughs> for you. And they were like, well, send it over. And so I showed them the intro in the first chapter, and they were like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, it was about only like a seven-month process to write it, yeah. I just felt driven. And uh, as I said, I'd, hate, I'd had eight years to assimilate yeah. well, that's all this great. material. Just needed to get it down. Well, let me thank you once again, Shane, and we'll make sure people get in their hands. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer, type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today do not recognize his presence in the Eucharist? Is it because we really don't go to him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see you. I want to recognize you. I cannot live without you. Are we saying that? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Good afternoon, and let me urge you to take advantage of the resources we have available for you in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. That's AveMariaRadio.net, and of course in the Krista Guest Archives, where you can go, and uh, virtually every segment we have on this program has a follow-up, a follow-up information posted in the 
archives of uh, go to Chris in the afternoon. So you just go to the AveMariaRadio.net, our home page of the website. Look in the upper right. You'll see my face there, Chris in the afternoon. Tap it, and that'll take you to the archives as a search function. And you can uh, really go to any day, um, you know, over the last few years and pick up information on the interviews that we've done. Also, you can access the interviews and listen to them again uh, through that uh, through that feature. But again, it's easy. Uh, AveMariaRadio.net. Take advantage of it. Uh, sometimes it's hard for us to get into the habit of uh, using new resources. So I just urge you every day to take advantage of what's there. Coming up next hour, Colleen Presbridge shares Marian consecration for families with young children. Um, she joined us uh, a few years ago uh, on this topic, and we've tried to repeat it at least once a year since uh, because I think it's unique in the way that she approaches families. So that's coming up. Also, we're going to meet the Blessed Mother in the Gospels. Uh, it's a wonderful work called Mary Among the Evangelists, the definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. Coming up next hour, stay with me. I'm Al Cresta. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, we are, of course, uh, this is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. We celebrate today the fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived, okay? She was conceived without sin. No taint of original sin, and also the dogma of the Immaculate Conception also states that she was free from actual sin as well. It's the, uh, the Holy Day of Obligation, and today we are focusing in on the role of the Blessed Mother in salvation history, in our own devotional life. And in this hour, Colleen Presbridge joins us, an interview we did a few years ago, uh, when Colleen had written a, a wonderful little book, uh, Marrying Consecration for Families with Young Children. So, you know, when we talk about making uh, consecration um, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary or to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, a lot of times that's a little too advanced for young children. And so what Colleen has done is she's developed a Marian consecration for families. So it join, again, it stretches the age span a bit. That's coming up uh, in the first segment of this hour. And then we're going to be joined by William Albrecht and uh, Father Christian Caps, who have written a book called Mary Among the Evangelists. It's a guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. It's true that May is the official month for Mary, but December is a special month as well. We've got the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. In a few days, we're going to have uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, not to mention, of course, the Nativity. And so this is an ideal time to rediscover what the New Testament says about the Blessed Mother. Again, William Albrecht and Father Christian Caps joining us. But first, it's the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 8th. It's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. Time is running out to get aid to Ukraine. 
That's what White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters today. She called on Congress to quickly pass President Biden's sweeping supplemental package that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and border security. But Republicans are staunchly opposed to passing the measure unless Democrats agree to border policy changes to address the surge of migrants coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans are calling for restrictions on asylum and parole programs. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said Biden is AWOL when it comes to addressing the crisis at the border. A judge's ruling a Colorado zoo can speak on behalf of its elephants, not an out-of-state animal rights group. The petition against the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado Springs was filed by the Non-Human Rights Project, which claimed the zoo was illegally confining and neglecting its five elderly African elephants and demanded they be relocated to a sanctuary. An El Paso County District judge has dismissed the case, stating the nonprofit's petition sought to give legal personhood to animals, and the zoo has a better relationship with its elephants than the group. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Colleen Presbridge, is a former missionary and Montessori teacher living with her husband, grandmother, and children in the state of Michigan. She's the author of a fascinating new book called Marian Consecration for Families with Young Children. Yeah, Marian Consecration for Families with Young Children. You can visit her at elevatortoheaven.com. And I do want to talk about this because I I think it's a real contribution uh, to the domestic church. Good to have you. It's nice to be yeah. here, Al. Let me uh, start with your own experience here, because you obviously, uh, from what I know, have been uh, involved in marrying consecration yourself. It's renewed re- regularly, but when did you start? Um, when I was in college, actually. I was about 20 years old, um, and I was in a prayer group at Emory University. And as we were praying together the four of us um we kept getting these images of mary we kept feeling her with us um and so we went to our campus minister and to our pastor and said we we really feel like we're supposed to be doing something to honor our lady did you have a did you have a catholic president emory's a methodist school emory is a methodist school but it has (laughs) one heck of a catholic center yeah yeah um and so they you know told us to look at saint louis de montfort and they pointed us in the direction of his true devotion to Mary, mm-hmm. um, and we just sort of dove right in. Yeah. So my first consecration to Mary was the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. I was 20 years old, um, and I haven't looked back since. It's honestly the best decision I ever made. Wow. That's great. That's great to hear. Uh, now, you felt compelled, as I understand it, to embark on this book because you think it's difficult for young children. Is that because of the language of St. Louis de Montfort? Is it, what is the problem? Well, I think that St. Louis' language is definitely tricky, and the concepts around Mary are, can be complicated. Um, and so as, I, as my old, oldest daughter was starting to get old enough and asking questions mm-hmm. and being interested, I wanted her to be able to participate with me. Um, and so I went looking for a resource for younger children and couldn't find any. Um, there are consecrations for teens and for adults and for yeah. um, children who are older, but there wasn't anything geared towards the domestic church 
yeah. with little kids. Right. Um, so my husband, being very supportive, said, well, y- you can write. <laughs> Go do it. Yeah. Um, and so you have this book. <laughs> Illustrations are great. Who who did those? Um, so her name is Rebecca Gorzinska. She's an um, expat living in Poland. You oh. can find her art at Delfina Rose Art. Um, she Very spent nice. a year Very and nice. a half working on these. They're 33 original wow. watercolors. Wow. Um, Beautiful. And they're all purposefully um, different ethnicities, different cultures mm-hmm. are depicted so that every family and every child can see their own Represented culture. somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very good. Um, let's talk about basic questions. What yeah. is a Marian consecration? So a Marian consecration is offering yourself, your you know, body and soul and good deeds and past, present, and future to Our Lady with the understanding that Mary always leads us to Jesus. And she always leads us to Jesus by the easiest route. Hmm. Um, So it's giving everything to her so that she can give it to him. And when we come to him with her, we're even more pleasing in his sight. Mm -hmm. And how long does it take to make a Marian consecration? So there are lots of different versions. Um, The two major ones are St. Maximilian Kolbe's consecration, which is just a a one-day thing, Mm -hmm. Um, and St. Louis's version, which requires 33 days of preparation. Um, I personally love the St. Louis version um, because I think it is such a major life decision um, that it does take time to prepare your heart. Um, and to go deeper, and to just grow. You write in the book about the importance of ritual uh, in the home. Tell us what you mean and why that is so important. So ritual for my family um, is the the security for children is very important. So children, um, when they have things that they know that they can expect. So, for example, if we always say our evening grace, you know, before our meal. And like, at, for example, at Advent, um, we do our evening grace, mm-hmm. we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we light the candle, we do the readings, we eat our meal. Um, the pattern of that 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 sets up um, puts the children at ease. Mm-hmm. And they feel more peaceful and more able to enter in because they're not worrying about what's coming next. So ritual for children can be a great way to draw them into the faith, just like the mass, right? Like we know what's coming. Yeah. We fall into yeah. those patterns and we are able to go deeper because it's not new every time. Yeah, yeah. it not only reassures us about what's coming, but it also smooths out what pa- what's past. So mm-hmm. conflicts that might be there, irritating that might be there are often forgotten once you re- re-enter uh, the family ritual, or whatever ritual, mass even. You Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, be, you say be flexible. Uh, this is, I'm sure, important. Why don't you explain why? Um, so with any, as with anything with children, you want to have you know your boundaries and your rituals, but you also need to have flexibility because sometimes there's a temper tantrum, mm-hmm. and sometimes you know the kids didn't sleep well, or there's a family event, or something you know unexpected happens in the day. And so one of the things that I write in this book is that 
it is designed to be 33 days. Um, and typically for adults, we do that all in a row. Um, but if for your family, you can make once a week work, sure. like praise Jesus, that's perfect. You know, if you miss a day and need to double up, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that you find what fits for your family and for your children. Um, it's open-ended enough to allow for whatever your domestic church looks like. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, so, what is the con- for those who are unfamiliar? What is the content? What is the what do you do for a consecration? So, well, for this one, um, it's set up into different sections. Um, so, the first thing that the children are going to learn about is who Mary is. Um, they're going to learn about <clears throat> um, major apparitions. And we'll tell the story of the apparitions. There's a Lexio Divino um, section where you can teach your child how to pray, you know, in this ancient way as the church does, Mm -hmm. um, that looks at the important moments in Mary's life that are in Scripture. Um, And there's, um, gosh, there's so much. Um, What can we learn from Mary? Mm -hmm. Um, And so for every day, there is a short meditation. there's an illustration. And then at the bottom of the page, there are these little conversation starters. They're designed to help you as a parent um, draw your child out to get into mm-hmm. what they're thinking. What are they seeing? What are they noticing? Um, and then at the back of the book, there's, an, there's a parent section. And so for every day, there's a note for the parents that you can read beforehand that just offers tips and hints for how to talk about some of these topics, um, more information that you might find fascinating, where to find different pieces of doctrine, um, things like that, the full scriptures, um, just to help along the way. So yeah. if you as a parent are still new to you know, Marian theology. Yeah, it's all right there at your fingertips. Most most Catholics actually are not especially familiar. Right. I mean, they, they may have devotions and things, but there's not been a lot of teaching on theology of Mary for a while. So that's so true. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I see you have important moments in Mary's life too. So there has this uh, kind of biographical sequence mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yep. This is actually this is one of the interesting things. Before I returned to the Catholic Church, I, you know, I was under the impression that, well, of course, Mary, you know, you respect her, but uh, you get the impression, well, but she's not mentioned that often. But it's where she's mentioned that's so important. She shows up, all the important places. She's there, you know. Yeah. And it's it's just amazing. Um, once I saw that, I thought, wow. Catholic Church has really learned uh, how to read uh, Scripture with its with proper proportion, uh, and they can attribute to the Marian incidents the degree of importance that they deserve. Uh, what, what ages are we looking at here? Well, so the first time I did this with my daughter, she was about two and a half. Really? Um, yep. She's our little Therese. You, that's, you surprised <laughs> me on that. Two and a half. So, wow. And that's why the illustrations are so vibrant. That's why the meditations are succinct. Yeah. Um, it's so that it still engages um, and that it can be done with very young children. But there's enough meat in it that as the child gets older... Um, so even I've had children of eight, of nine and ten find it fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it's really for a broad age because our families sure. are broad. 
uh, what kind of questions come up? What kind of questions do kids bring up? Do they bring up questions, or do you have to kind of pull teeth? Um, sometimes it's a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. So my daughter, Gianna, um, asks a ton of questions, um, and they're often, you know, theological questions. Mm-hmm. So she wants to know about, you know, the assumption. She wants to know about, <laughs> you know, purgatory, and yeah. she wants to know about what is hell like, and she wants to know about the specifics of heaven, and she's, so that's her. Um, my son is a thinker, and he sits back and ponders. And so for, you know, a day or two, he's going to, like, mull something over. And then at the oddest moments, he'll come out with, you know, a question. Um, And that's why there are conversation starters is because sometimes kids don't know how to put things into words. Oh, right. Um, And sometimes they do need you to kind of pull things out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some kids are very uh, loquacious. They have questions. They like questions. Uh, mm-hmm. They like to be heard asking questions. Yes. <laughs> and other kids don't. They are much more passive and uh, observant and uh, trying to establish what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So you have how to be in the presence of God. This is day 11. And <clears throat> so just explain to me, how, what do you, how do you communicate that to two-and-a-half-year-old or seven-year-old? Well, you bring it back to, um, you bring it back to family and to relationships, right? Because mm-hmm. Mary was a real person, and she was in relationship with both the Holy Spirit and with Christ. Mm-hmm. And that idea of staying present, um, you talk about as a family, Mm-hmm. You know, like what, how to listen to God, how to hear him, mm-hmm. how to talk to him. Um, and I think that those are all things children can understand. Um, sometimes we forget that they actually yeah. grasp concepts yeah. much more deeply than we realize. Yeah. Well, the, actually, the cognitive sciences have uh, made the point. I think a fellow's name is Justin Barrett, who was the fellow who wrote on this, that um, uh, very young children uh, actually do uh, assume that there's a kind of a invisible moral agent out there mm-hmm. who's responsible. So. I think children are very, they're very naturally drawn to the Lord. Colin, thanks so much. Good being with you, and uh, keep me informed. Huh? Marian Consecration for Families with Young Children. Colleen Presbridge, our Sunday visitor, published it. We'll talk again. Thank you so much, Al. Yeah. We'll have it available, of course, in the online bookstore as well. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly 
as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now. Is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish. Or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data. We got tons of data. Not a lack of information. We got a lot of information. Not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God. But not a lot of intimacy with God. Not a lot of relationship with God. Not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship. And we're not taking advantage of it. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to his voice, to the peace you are seeking and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Advent is here, and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Pull of the Week to let us know. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Crest on the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Commonly, for men and women who come into full non-Catholic Christians who end up coming into full communion with the Catholic Church, a sizable number, a percentage of them, will tell you that some of their biggest uh, theological worries and doctrinal worries uh, came up surrounding the Blessed Mother. Uh, they had respect for Mary as uh, the, the one who received. Um, 
the visitation of the angel uh, and the uh, commission to be the mother of our Savior. Uh, but when it comes to the Church's uh, dogmas regarding immaculate conception, the bodily assumption, perpetual virginity, they say, gosh, I just don't think you can find that in Scripture. And they don't, uh, that's often a way of hanging back before they can uh, affirm, you know, before they can state that they affirm all that the Catholic Church teaches. I know this because it was my case back in the uh, mid-1980s. It was a few years yet before I finally realized that the, the Church's teaching on the Blessed Mother was, first of all, about the nature of Jesus. Uh, it had a lot to do with the whole mystery of the Incarnation. But we have two guests with us right now who have put a lot of thought into this and have provided a definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. It's called Mary Among the Evangelists, and uh, the authors are Reverend Dr. Uh, Christian Kappas, uh, currently academic dean and professor at St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books and articles in peer-reviewed publications that touch upon Mariology. And we also have with us William Albrecht, who is a co-author of the book and is... Um, co-host for Reason and Theology. Uh, He uh, appears on EWTN, uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and other networks. He runs a website dedicated to the early church fathers that uh, includes unique translations, articles, commentaries, and debates uh, on the fathers uh, in the church. Gentlemen, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. What a pleasure to be here with you, Al. Well, let me ask, uh, uh, Father, when did, uh, what was the origin of the book? Uh, When did it first become clear that this was something that had to make its way into print? Well, it's uh, it's an excellent starting point, because uh, the book is really a development from a series of popular articles that were provided for free on the very website that you advertised on, on William's behalf, in which we just wanted to provide um, Christians, and uh, specifically a lot of Catholic Christians, since that's a lot of the people that William dialogues with, but Mm -hmm. he also uh, has informal but regular meetings with Orthodox, uh, Oriental Orthodox, and uh, even Protestant Christians. And uh, we, I I proffered or offered him uh, to do a little article on the Annunciation, and uh, from there I was really astounded at how many downloads William was reporting that there were. And so we uh, we put together a little program to do about, um, I guess altogether it was about four or five articles that I tried to keep under 15 pages apiece mm-hmm. in order to try to help them understand um, what I was seeing um, from uh, uh, reading the Greek New Testament and dialogue with the Greek Old Testament, by and large. And the articles really took off, and uh, at a certain point, uh, William and I agreed that probably the next step is is to compile these and perfect the articles, which were in a popular, non-published fashion, uh, and, and to provide those in, in a book that people could purchase, even though the information, about 60 or 70 percent of it, was already available online. Uh, William, what were some of the, the most vexing questions uh, that made you realize you had to settle down and get this material in print and available? What were some of the most vexing questions regarding the Blessed Mother? That, that is a fantastic question, Al. And 
working and dealing in apologetics for quite some time, I, I realized that uh, coming over to, into Catholicism from Protestantism, the frequent objections you commonly hear, as you know quite well, are, well, how can Mary uh, be immaculate? Because she needed a Savior. Right. Uh, how could Mary have been given honor uh, by our Lord and Savior if in Luke 11 she was, you know, clearly, uh, you know, there was clearly a rebuke there, mm-hmm. uh, a direction to not giving our mother honor, and, and many other questions that really, I mean, I'll be quite honest, Al, they were on my mind when I was a Protestant, and I recognized coming over into Catholicism, our separated brothers and sisters still had those on their minds, and really, even though I've been in the church, thanks be to God, for so many years, these objections have not gone away on the other side. Right. Right. Yeah, even though there are much better uh, apologetic materials today than there were 30 years ago, uh, those objections yes. are still out there. Yeah. I agree. Yes. Well, let's get to, let's get to uh, the one other methodology issue here, and that is your focus upon the Scriptures themselves. Uh, it, you make a point of really saying that you wanted to root this argument in the biblical texts, uh, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, yeah, the scriptures, uh, uh, they, they are, we sort of believe in the inspiration, we believe in the inspiration of scripture, but, you know, we don't get all of our doctrine from scripture, so it's not very important to really make the effort to tie these dogmas to scripture. How do you reply to that? Would you like to go? That is a really good question. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Father. I'd rather Father uh, take that one. That's a great question for Father. Sure. Go ahead, Father. Yeah, um... I think that the, the the church has allowed a wide berth for that. There's a classical sort of um, division between a Franciscan and a Dominican approach. Um, one thinking that the, the scriptures do contain materially everything uh, that we believe in our very very expansive creed and magisterium, and another one saying that it's sufficient that um, we can reason from the scriptures mm-hmm. necessarily some of these truths. And um, we we didn't really weigh in on that. We just took as the point of departure um, the presumption that we could find everything, Marian-wise, to say nothing of uh, the other dogmas of the Church um, in the Scriptures. And uh, we wanted to figure out what we could find out by just taking a look at the use, again, mainly of the uh, Greek Old Testament by the New Testament writers, who 90% of the time are cataloged to quote from the Greek Old Testament, That's and right. because it is not a fashionable thing to do, even among scholars, uh, we made a lot of fun, interesting, and I think uh, ultimately irrefutable discoveries that, uh, that really privilege Our Lady. So it's very important, then, to focus in on that Greek translation of the Old Testament, is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Luke, Luke especially, who of course has the most to say about Mary, is by and large just weaving various citations from the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, if uh, as I've said uh, in another time and place, um, you know, when you walked into an ancient Bible store, you didn't have a thousand and one translations; you only had one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you had, and, and basically you had some variations with that one that was available in the popular language of Greek. We don't really have Latin translations of the Bible yeah. that we can verify until about 250 A.D. Right. Uh, and so basically you're, you're kind of stuck with one edition, which makes it really easy for everybody to know where your stuff is coming from. But eventually the Church got to the point where when you had new editions and different editions coming out, that people kind of forgot 
to prioritize reading, I think, the only edition that was available to the writing of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the relationship between the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, and uh, any of the early Hebrew uh, translations, or Hebrew presentations, uh, excuse me? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll let uh, William uh, add a couple cent, uh, cents on this one, but uh, just just in summary, I'd say uh, I certainly think that that 80 or 90 to 10 Split is important because it means that you can't use one without the other. Okay, uh, and there are there are competing traditions, meaning we'd, we're not really sure in any one given time or place which one we should prefer based off of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, our key of presuming which is the right reading is the one that the New Testament writers use, of course, because yes. they're canonical scripture. Right, uh, and then and then I would say that uh, probably the last thing. Um, maybe to keep in mind with the relationship between the Septuagint and uh, the Hebrew or the Masoretic text is, because you have a lot of Jewish people who are translating into Greek, and they're perfectly fine with taking their baseball and football idioms and just translating them literally uh, into Greek, mm-hmm. uh, they don't make any sense to a Greek speaker. You have to be a Hebrew uh, who's speaking in Greek with a lot of these idioms. So you can't really read the Septuagint unless you know a lot of the Hebrew idiom that's behind what they're trying to say in the Greek language. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. William, you want to add anything to that? That, that is a great point, and I totally agree with Father. And I, I think another thing that we we realized when working on this uh, this, this project, Al, is, is when we look at the evangelist, uh, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we recognize how heavily reliant they are on the Greek text of the Septuagint. But it, to me... What is even more incredible, such as when we touch upon uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, which, by the way, we, we believe that you can clearly see that Mary's taken a vow of virginity there, we recognize, well, okay, well, what is, what is Luke, um, who clearly wrote in the style of a historian, what is Luke referring to? And we recognize yes. that all of everything in Luke, as you know, Al, is so heavily reliant on the Greek, even the virgin birth prophecy. Right he would have clearly known that his audience would have been familiar with what he was hearkening to. They would have picked up uh, all the implications of some of these key words that he used. I agree. Well, let's talk a little, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, this is related to uh, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's where you're being in chapter 1, 2. Mary in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, the question you raise at the very beginning, who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? The significance of that is that if he had, um, uh, you know, uh, bro- biological brothers and sisters, or those who passed through the womb of Mary, that would be the death of the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So, let's go to that. What is the problem behind the, the phrase, the brothers and sisters of the Lord? That is a great, great question. Yeah. Uh, Father, you, you want to maybe start off with that, and I'll, I'll piggyback uh, off of uh, what, what you had there? Well, as you wish. Um yeah, I think one of the fun first things to think about that is often missed, um, and I'm, I'm very humbled that um, Scott Hahn was, was one who uh, drew our attention to this, was that it's, it's, it's an original talking point nowadays. I don't think it would have been an original talking point to people that were, again, reading the only edition of the Bible that exists, which was Greek and uh, Greek uh, for the average Christian. 
Uh, I'll, I'll tell you but, what. Uh, I just heard the music come up. Let's take okay. a break. We'll come back and pick up the conversation from there. We'll have sufficient time to unpack it. Uh, we're talking with uh, Father uh, Christian uh, Kappas and William Albrecht. They are together uh, the authors of Mary Among the Evangelists. It's the definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band, and I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child, but I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The Catholic Catechism tells us the gifts of the Holy Spirit sustain us in a moral life. They are a permanent disposition, making man docile to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are seven in number. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. They are seen in their fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. 
The fruits of the Holy Spirit are perfections the Holy Spirit forms in us as first fruits of eternal glory. They are charity, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We're looking at Mary Among the Evangelists. That's the title of the book by uh, Father Christian Kappas and William Albrecht. The, the definitive, gu- definitive Guide for Solving Biblical Questions About Mary, and that's what we were doing. We were getting the kind of the method uh, of doing this uh, in the first segment. Now we're going to one of the uh, questions that non-Catholics often bring up, and that is the question of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Uh, if Mary was, in fact, a perpetually virgin, uh, if there were no other uh, biological brothers and sisters of Jesus, that is, uh, brothers and sisters who had passed through the womb of Mary, then what do we do with uh, these phrases, the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Don't these phrases, uh, aren't they incompatible with the Catholic uh, Church's teaching here? And uh, you begin your book with uh, Mark chapter 6, which deals with this uh, phrase, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, Father, go ahead and uh, pick us up where we were just before the break. Sure. I think the great thing about the book is, um, though we spend a lot of time prefacing languages, the book is designed that you can just meditatively read through it without any need to to reference to foreign languages. uh, And and in fact, one of the most clear arguments is this first point, which is in in Matthew 1, you know, we're all going to have this read for our Christmas Gospels, the lineage of Jesus, and um, the first thing that sticks out, uh, as was considered fascinating by some of the people that that read the book, which uh, I think is really interesting myself, um, that they were so fascinated with this, was the very first Gospel, uh, and the very first lines, already tells us who brothers and sisters can be, and that is when Matthew tells us that Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and then Jacob begot um, Joseph and all of his brothers. But his brothers, his brethren, as they're used in the New Testament, are uh, mostly brothers of another mother. There's only really, <laughs> uh, uh, really Benjamin is, is of the same mother, right? That's good, right, right. So, uh, you know, pretty much 90% of the time when you're talking about the brothers of Joseph, you're talking about sons of a different mother, of a different womb, to use your uh, mm-hmm. uh, inferences there. So we already see that Matthew provides for us the principal key for, for looking at everything that is going to be upcoming in the rest of the Gospels, that it means the child of a different mother. Uh, I think one of the other more fascinating passages, before I know uh, William's probably chomping at the bit to talk about um, Mary's vow of perpetual virginity, uh, especially because there's uh, all kinds of fun patristic stuff that we've found in addition to what's already out, um, but um, the uh, the other great verse is if we were to go to Mark 6, which is early on in the book, mm-hmm. we would see that uh, Jesus uh, goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and uh, some of his opposition party, people that really are trying to put up a block against the gospel being preached in his hometown, Nazareth, they list off very precisely the people they think that are in Jesus' family that aren't worthy of mention. They're not honorable people, or they're actually 
actively opposing his ministry. So the first two that they mention without honor are Mary, and then in the list comes uh, a woman who has uh, Simon and Josie's and James. We may be familiar with these being called the brothers of Jesus, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just like in Matthew's Gospel. They could be sons of a different mother, but we don't know that yet. So Jesus' enemies list is quite precise. It's first his mother, then this woman who has four sons, of whom I've named Josie's, etc., Simon, and those are called his brothers. And then there's these native girls that live in Nazareth that are called his sisters, and they are actively opposing him in Nazareth. And it, it, it looks at first that we don't really know much more until we go down just a few more verses in Mark 6 from that description, and we see Jesus answers with great precision, tit for tat, the entire list that is proposed to him by his enemies. And he skips over his mother, who is with honor, and this is going to happen in Matthew's Gospel again, and it's even more precise in Matthew's Gospel. The reason why he skips over his mother is because Matthew is going to add the story of Joseph's uh, Annunciation and Mary's virgin birth. And this is quite clear that in Matthew's Gospel, the same thing happens where Joseph in the enemies list uh, who is mentioned, and Mary in the enemies list, which is mentioned in Matthew, is ignored because they are people with honor. So Jesus skips over naming Mary as a person that is without honor. He admits that the second group listed by his enemies are family members that aren't special. They're not kings, they're not prophets, they're not rich people, and yet he calls them not his brothers, but he answers his enemies list and he says, a prophet is without honor among his cousins. And the word that he uses is sin genes, uh-huh. or sin genes. Uh, Which is different word, than Adelphos, right? What, what's that? That's different than Adelphos or Adelphoi. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, this word, if you look it up in your best dictionary or lexicon of Greek, it's quite clear that sin genes, or cousin, is meant to be diametrically opposed child of the same mother. So the entire huh. definition Interesting. of what Jesus is saying in his tit-for-tat list to his enemies is that these four people that you just mentioned, those are my syngenes, those are my cousins. That means, by definition in Greek, they are the children of a different mother. And then the last group that he answers in the tit-for-tat list, the active opposition that he's getting in Nazareth uh, in Mark 6, he lists those persons as members of his household. And what we notice is that St. Jerome, I I think William for this discovery, is St. Jerome had already noticed that in all the synoptic Gospels is that there's a threefold division of a house. There's the heads of the family, which are the military-age young men. Then there is a household, which is what these girls belong to, and the definition of a household in the Book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which the synoptics are using verbatim, uh, is the extended family, not brothers and sisters, the extended family. Yeah. And, and so what we end up having then is Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, as well as in Mark's Gospel, use that exact list of his enemies to mean his cousins, his children that live in the same uh, general vicinity but are of a different mother, and the people in his household which are extended members of his family, namely his female cousins. And so we exactly know there that we must exclude all these lists of so-called brothers and sisters from being of the same mother. That's a little bit different from saying perpetual virginity, so I'll, I'll let right. William take up this lap. So that, that's one way of dealing with the uh, the distinctions uh, between cousins, uh, household, relatives, uh, uh, biological brothers, sisters. 
What about your argument, uh, William, that uh, she, Mary was perpetually virgin because, in fact, she made a vow? Uh, so tell us what the biblical material offers us uh, in that argument. That is a fantastic question there, Al. And I think when we look at Luke, we recognize clearly that when Luke is breaking down the text, that he's referring to the book of Judges 11. And again, the one thing we clearly like to point out is, in the book we rely heavily on the scripture, but we can recognize that even the early church fathers recognized this connection. Because if we go to Judges 11, we notice that in the beginning... Jephthah makes a vow to God before a battle. The Spirit of the Lord gives the inspiration to Jephthah to make the vow. It sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord. Mm -hmm. If he wins the battle, the first thing he encounters in the way home, he will offer it up to the Lord as a sacrifice. That's right. So the points in Holy Writ are really clear. Jephthah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made a vow. And when he encounters his daughter, and she's notified of the unfortunate circumstance, she responds by saying, and she said to her father, let this be done for me. Let me alone for two months. And remember, Mary visited Elizabeth for how long? For three months. Yeah. And this is incredible. Look at this, Al. She comes back, Jephthah's daughter, on the third month, as the Greek text tells us, as she is left alone for two she goes away to mourn and bewail her virginity. Right. She founds out, finds out she has been vowed to perpetual virginity. And Luke, the incredible historian that he is, Al, catches this perfectly. And in Luke 1, Mary is saying the exact words, How can this be when the angel Gabriel greets her? Since I do not know man. The fathers view these words as a vow. And the text does as well, because it's clearly there in Judges. And another thing, Al, that's been so important that we relied on to show this clearly in the text. Uh, and Father noted this. Father, Father looked clearly in the biggest, the, the massive connect, uh, collection of Greek texts known to mankind, the Thesaurus Lingre Grece, in all of Greek literature, all of Greek literature prior to 100 A.D., there are only two areas with this citation. That is Judges 11 and Luke 1. Luke is directly quoting that and telling us she knew not man. She remained... Just like Jephthah's daughter. Yep, yeah. just like Jephthah's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Very good. Very good. Um, what, um, uh, what else can you extract more from that uh, encounter between uh, Gabriel and Mary uh, regarding her future? There's the reference there to Jephthah's daughter. Uh, what about the language that's uh, used by Luke uh, about the Holy Spirit overshadowing her? Yes. Did yes. you want to take that we up, definitely... or did you want me to? Yeah, I'll... I'll, I'll... I'll take that up really quickly, and then I'll let you okay. follow up with it. That's, that's a great question, Al. And in fact, we cover that clearly. We show that clearly the language being utilized here shows, without a shadow of a doubt, that Mary is being shown as the new ark of the covenant. The language is very clear here. And the language, by the way, as you know, Al, we find, um, we find all these parallelisms of Mary uh, being the new ark. What happens? The baby leaps in the womb. Um, uh, 
you know, all of the language, Mary is carrying the word, you know, the new word. Right. Uh, Mary is, is this special figure that is carrying our incarnate Lord and Savior. So really everything that is broken down there points to her being the new ark of the new covenant. We show that as well, but incredible, Al, how this text is so loaded with theology, because not only does it point to that, but it shows that Mary was the one, the very first one, to hear that word and to vouchsafe that word. And indeed, there is no objection in Luke 11 that people think there is, because when Luke says, blessed, rather are those that hear the word of God and obey it, we're directly told in Luke 1, that she is the one that heard right. that word first right. and made it. Yes, yeah, so even even in the place where some people see that Jesus is minimizing uh, Mary's status, he's in fact calling them back to what she did at the moment of the Annunciation. She was the one who heard God's word and kept it. Very good. Absolutely, yes. Um, do you, we're, we've got about 90 seconds left here, and let me just ask a more general question, because I think this is a wonderful guide for people uh, to, again, take seriously the biblical text when it comes to these uh, dogmas regarding the uh, Blessed Mother. Uh, what was your favorite, I'm just curious, what was your favorite biblical insight uh, as you worked through this, William? My favorite one was definitely Luke 2. I would recommend people check it out for Luke 2. We clearly show that the purification there, which we're told in the Greek was for Mary and Christ, is not one for sin, but rather highlights the special role of Mary in salvation history. And I know Father has this special one as well, so I want to give him the last word. Father, we've got about 15 seconds. Go ahead. All right. Well, it's definitely... Uh the relationship between Judges 11, Mary's perpetual vow of virginity, which justifies Ambrose, Gregory Nyssa, and Augustine. And uh, we even have, through William, the money quotes for that one now. <laughs> Very good. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk again. Uh, it's a marvelous book. And it's, it's, I love the, uh, I also like the length of it. It's only 150 pages, and it's packed with material. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? It's old theory. Somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers. And it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. 
Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Uh, it's fun to point out that this is actually uh, a patronal feast day uh, for the nations of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Italy, Korea, Nicaragua, Paraguay, the Philippines, Spain, Uruguay, and the United States. So it's important to keep in mind that really uh, the Blessed Mother is a patron of the Americas. All right. Uh, let me tell you what you can do to get more information. You can go to AveMariaRadio.net. We have follow-up information on each of our program segments there. We also have the uh, books that we referred to during today's program, uh, Mary Among the Evangelists. We also have Mary and Consecration for Families with Young Children. Uh, again, AveMariaRadio.net. You have two tools there to help following up. You've got the online bookstore, and you have the Crested Guest Archives where there's information. Lord willing, I'll see you soon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.